Hello and welcome to another edition of Off Camera. I'm your host, Sam Jones, and in this episode, I sit down with Robert Downey Jr. H.L. Mencken once said, Moral certainty is always a sign of cultural inferiority. The more uncivilized the man, the surer he is that he knows precisely what is right and what is wrong. The truly civilized man is always skeptical and tolerant in this field as in all others. His culture is based on, I am not too sure. Henry Louis Mencken and Robert Downey Jr. did not cross paths in life, though it's fun to imagine that conversation. But the essayist's quote is an apt description of the actor's approach to life. Downey's restless intelligence is reflected in his ability to express several contradictory points of view simultaneously, making sense all the while. He can be direct one moment and elusive the next, often spinning off on seemingly unrelated tangents. But like watching a juggler on a wire, being in Downey's presence is a riveting experience. For someone who from almost the outset was deemed the greatest actor of his generation, the majority of Robert Downey Jr.'s career has been filled with big commercial flops, critically acclaimed flops, very public struggles with drugs, and more than a little jail time. All of which have landed him squarely in some of the biggest blockbuster films in recent history. It's an unlikely hero story, but then Robert Downey Jr. is an unlikely hero. With the release of the final film in the Iron Man trilogy, it's ironic to contemplate that the studios also didn't see him as a hero, least of all an action hero. Downey disagreed. At once supremely convinced of his own talent and extremely humble, he fought hard for the role of Tony Stark when the studio flatly refused to even let him audition. He prepped intensely, though for other roles he admits he's just as likely to wing it. Downey is a comfortable resident of that gray area we all inhabit. He is somewhat remorseful about his jail time, but without resentment towards the upbringing that arguably introduced him to the lifestyle that led him there. His years in the industry have left him clear-eyed and cynical about the business, yet he remains full of enthusiasm and curiosity about his art. And he's deadly serious about bringing the best of himself to the set every day. He's an obsessive analytic who's inclined to let his gut make most of his decisions. On any multiple-choice personality test, Robert Downey Jr. is all of the above. Maybe that's what keeps us watching. So pull up a chair and listen in. Off Camera with Sam Jones, Episode 6, Roll A, Take 1. Soft sticks. <laughs> nice. Hi, Sam. Hi, Robert. How you doing? Happy. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. You're most welcome. Um, and I, you know, I've known you a long time, and we've done a lot of photo shoots together. Uh, but I'll tell you, I, I truly see you as a kind of a modern Renaissance artist. You're an actor. You're a dancer. You're a musician. Primarily a dancer. Primarily a dancer, <laughs> as we all know. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I realized I don't really know how, you, how things began for you. I know that you worked on your father's films first and that he was a kind of experimental avant-garde filmmaker. Yeah. Um, but when, when was the first time you felt like you were in a career, you had a job, you're acting, and it was something you wanted to be good at? Well, first of all, uh, the disclaimer is I'm not a dancer, but I have had to dance before. And there's things you learn, it's like anything particularly coming up in the 80s like I did, anybody who had a general understanding of a bunch of different things when you're going to 890 Broadway and auditioning for some musical or whatever you were doing, if you knew a little bit about as much as you could, you stood a better chance of getting any job, which was the objective, get any job. So 
Uh, my earliest thoughts on the matter were it would be more uh, lucrative and more um, soul-soothing to get a job doing something in entertainment than to stay uh, bussing tables and working at shoe stores and doing food prep or whatever. And I remember being in uh, New York and there was this whole kind of group of guys um, who we were trying to do theater or some of us were trying to be in bands and all that stuff. And, um, and there was, a, uh, there was a, a musical called American Passion which uh, ran at the Joyce Theater for one night before Frank Rich's uh, reviews closed it. And we got to go workshop it in Boston. And I just remember that being like, wow, this is really cool. So that was real for you at that point? So real. How old were you then? I think I was like 17 or 18. We were getting 140 bucks a week and singing. Well, I won't claim to be a dancer. I am uh, a, uh, I can sing. And so the dancing just meant, you know, learn these steps and, and don't fall down when you're doing them. But I, I thought or read that you studied ballet at some point. Yeah, I love, by the way, I love that story. The truth be told is when my dad was, uh, had our family in London in about 1970 or 71, he was writing the script for what wound up being this movie called Greaser's Palace. My sister Allison and I went to a, uh, a public school, which means private school, you know that's confusing, called Perry House. And there, all the boys took ballet, and I don't know, the girls played lacrosse, I don't know what they did. So, so we're not going to perpetrate that myth any further. No, we should. Because <laughs> later on, when I was in high school, right before uh, this musical I was talking about, I was going to Samuel High right before I dropped out. Um, Ramon Estevez, the middle brother, the very eccentric and gifted middle brother between Emilio and Charlie, we were doing um, Oklahoma. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And I got cast as whatever his name was, Will Parker or whatever it was. So there was a tap dance number. So he forcibly made me learn enough tap to be able to do the sequence in the play. Well, I do notice in working with you and photographing you that you do have a, an awareness of your body and the way you move it and how it functions with the character. Um, and, and, you know, I've seen that come up many times. Just you have an awareness of your body in the way that a lot of good actors do. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that that's something that just comes naturally to you? Or was there a moment when you said, oh, I need to have control of this whole thing because it will add dimension to what I do? Well, I mean, truth be told is I didn't, I didn't grow up feeling like I was necessarily in my body or aware of it or learning how to move it or, or, or do anything, you know? And I always, I still marvel at, at performers who seem like they're, they have a, a real objectivity about what they're doing and when. But what I did do was, like I said, I learned a little bit of tap dancing, which by the way, came in handy when I did Less Than Zero because I thought that's a scene where Julian thinks things are about to come together for him, so he's celebrating and it also gave an opening frame for our director to pull back from to have the guy playing my uncle, Michael Green, tell me that it wasn't gonna happen. So to me, it was like all these, these little, like I said, being a, a generalist, knowing a little bit about a lot of stuff helped. But um, I've actually found that in some ways I've become less and less conscious 
of having an objectivity when I'm working. Like I used to go up and touch the cameras or I felt like I was really paying attention and learning like, you know, okay, oh, that guy knows how to open a door or whatever. But correspondingly, I've also, you know, as you start getting towards looking at the back nine in my, in my uh, late 30s, I got really interested in martial arts and, and everything pays off. Anything you take an interest in as an artist, you'll be able to use in your work. I, you know, when you say generalist, I think that my favorite artists are generalists. I feel like that they just have this natural curiosity about everything, so there's no way you can't yeah. get involved. If, I mean, if you're around somebody that's doing something, you can either sit there and not pay attention to it, or you can try to absorb it for that, even if it's only a half hour or an afternoon of your life. Right. Well, speaking of dance, I went to Royce Hall a couple weekends ago with some friends, and we saw this uh, company called Ultima Res out of um, Belgium, and I thought it was mind-blowing. Now, everybody thought I got too excited about it, um, but I was just amazed because being a bit of a villagey kind of art rat growing up in the 70s with my family and stuff, like, you know, I remember seeing uh, glimpses into that sort of like modern dance and really thoughtful, evocative choreography and stuff, you know? Um, and so I got really excited about that. And I think the reason that we work well together is you were saying it a couple of minutes ago, like you have kind of a genuine enthusiasm. Even on the days when I don't really want to be anywhere, it's important for me to demonstrate that I'm glad to be where I am and I'm going to have a earnest and kind of um, authentic um, empathy for the potential stress of doing things, but I want to be excited about what I'm doing. Yeah, or else what's the point, right? Right. Well, th then the point is you go down that rabbit hole of, you know, just being an asshole, a really lucky asshole all the time. I have this picture in my head of your upbringing yeah. being kind of like this crazy art commune where anything goes and it's like a salon in the 20s or something. I mean, wh <laughs> what was it like? I mean, your dad has a reputation for being, you know, a very eclectic artist, a very, you know, odd director who would pull people out of phone booths and give them a yeah. part in his movie. And um, what was the Downey household like? Even before you thought, oh, I'm going to be a professional actor, right. you, were, you were in the arts every day, kind of. Yeah, and by the way, I don't know if I ever really had that thought that this is what I'm going to do. It never occurred to me to do anything else, and it just kind of, you know, life happens, you know? Nowadays, I think about it in the context of how absolutely competitive it is to go out and land a job anywhere from having a background of, you know, extraordinary training or just being somebody who was on a reality show for two days. but. The way I grew up was, you know, my mom and dad were actually kind of squares who found themselves being really entrenched in this kind of counterculture, underground filmmaking uh, world. And so it was all the people you would expect who'd been around in, in, you know, in Greenwich Village around that time. And so to me, it was just really natural. Like, um, for instance, the other day, me and the missus and a bunch of people are sitting around spitballing on kind of a big um, studio movie and uh, Exton, our 14-month-old, toddles in the room and he just sits there and, and while we're all talking and ideas are going back and forth and we're laughing or we're, you know, or we're whatever, talking smack about some potential casting choice or doing whatever you do, we're just kibitzing and the ideas were all, were all kind of, you know, heating this, this 
project up to 211 degrees and stirring it slowly and seeing what happens. You know, we're developing it. And I look over it, and so in, in a sentence, that was my, my childhood was what I saw Exton having. It was absolutely natural, and I took my comfort in being around the situation where whether it was after hours and my dad was playing a, a poker game with, you know, with, you know, pick a name of someone who was, who was in that kind of world in the, in the late 60s, to um, him and my mom trying to beat each other with what a, a funny one-liner was for, you know, this transitionary scene in a, in a movie. And what was that relationship like? Did you look up to him? Did you idolize him? I, I, I know he was also a boxer at some point. Was, it, was he, he was. a powerful presence? Um, it's funny, uh, Joe Wright, the director, told me he was doing this, this uh, I think it was a TV series, and there was a guy who had to play a, you know, a, a British king, and he said, I just don't know how I get the authority of this character, I, I'm, it's, I'm not really grasping it. And so what Joe did was during the rehearsals, whenever this actor walked in, he had everybody in the rehearsal room stand up, and they wouldn't sit down in, until he did. So it invested him with the authority. And what I remember is growing up around someone to whom many others were very reverent, particularly around the time that uh, his film Putney Swope came out and it really was kind of a, a, a mind-blowing um, satire of advertising and racism and power and corruption and, and all that stuff. It's literally just brilliant. So that's what I heard a lot. Uh, my dad was, you know, brilliant. My dad was this and that. And, and, um, and then I remember one day, it was, I think it was really hip in the village back then, like they got uh, circa 1968 or nine, people were getting like t-shirts with big decals on them and someone got him a blue shirt with a big Superman logo on it. And in the loft we lived in, there was like this king's throne. And I think once I remember seeing him sitting in the throne wearing the Superman t-shirt and then I saw it on TV and anyway but I think everybody's dad is is a is their first projection of of you know that that archetype of power and virility and you know was he a gentle guy to you I mean did, did you have a or was he working a lot and uh, working a lot very kind of post mid-century guy you know what I mean more, uh, more uh, James Dean than James Franco, you know? Um, both great individuals, different centuries. Um, but what I remember is, it's funny too, because you know, I have a, I have a nine-year-old son and now I have just a, you know, a baby. And you look back in the context of, I think we always do, and I know you got kids and you love them and it's great and that's, that's kind of the whole point, but I, I find myself looking back at um, my parents in the context of my parenting. And I realized that as nutso and, and gonzo as that emerging generation was, and obviously there's, you know, um, casualties, you know, littering the, uh, the seascape of that, of that um, generation. But I, I remember an incredibly kind of um, thoughtful and considerate and affectionate and kind of attentive dad. Now, I choose to remember that because unconsciously there's these long swaths of time when you have a dad that's in the military or you have a dad that works a nine to five and goes on business trips. My dad was almost always home or if he was on the set, I was probably heading there if I wasn't there already. 
See, I think that's amazing that he had the life where he included you guys from the beginning. Yeah. Some would say too much, but it's all relative. Well, there are those stories where <laughs> he may have included you in some adult things when you're still a kid. Sure. I mean, now having kids, how does that, you know, how do you look at that now being an adult? Like, do you think it was just naivety or do you think that he just felt like you could handle it? Um, well, you know, to me, the 80s are a period piece. And then if you go back to the 60s and 70s, it's kind of like it's, it's our own ancient history. So it might as well uh, have been, you know, the restoration in the 1660s. It's an entirely different set of priorities, an entirely different set of, um, of, uh, of tools and resources for, for living uh, an examined life and, and all that stuff, you know? Um, and I just, you know, I choose to remember it fondly. I read one story about you where your dad backed you up when you told the school that you didn't, you weren't really interested in being at the school. Yeah. Uh, looking back, I mean, do you think that your father really felt like he was doing you a favor at that point? Or, I, I mean... I guess I just want to know with your age and wisdom and experience, right. how you look at like, you know, how that influenced your idea of right and wrong. And did you have to like relearn what right and wrong was? Well, if you think about the, the negotiation generation of, of kids that in the very kind of child centric nineties who are now off to college or dropped out or are wondering what they're going to do or they're at college wondering what they're going to do. You know, previous to that, there was this very kind of stoic mindset of there comes a time when you have to boot your kid out of the nest to show them that blah, blah, blah. And I'm sure that goes back to, you know, kind of, um, you know, post-war stuff and probably um, turn of the century stuff. And I'm sure it just goes back and goes back and goes back. And I love when the words kids these days comes out of my mouth, you know. But I think a lot of it was semi-arbitrary. They weren't really planned, you know. I was put firmly under the uh, suspicion that, you know, there was no more handouts and I had to go do my own thing, you know, which is, I guess, I mean, perfectly expectable for the son of, like, you know, uh, a, a farmer in, sure. in Omaha. But, you know, on, on when you, you shake America and the kind of, weirdos wind up on both coasts it's like we have different ideas of you know of, of what's supposed to happen but I found it really motivating you did yeah I never really looked back I just kind of certain things you know the way they happen you just accept them as okay I, I have to accept this because otherwise I'm going to be pretending what just happened didn't happen but also you know like I love uh, I think the greatest gift anybody can give anyone or anyone can cultivate is the ability to develop your hustle you know you didn't wind up with all these you know kind of great pictures on the wall and documentaries in the can and and this nice space to do this project kind of on your own terms because uh, it was all handed to you right you know you have to develop like and nobody's hustle is like anybody else's you know that is true and one thing I've always thought about you is that you are someone who doesn't make excuses for themselves. You don't, you seem like part of a previous generation in terms like that, like my father, like you never make an excuse for yourself. And yet I find that 
like it's hard to balance that dichotomy with somebody who went through so many personal things, yeah. so many personal issues that are very public, and that you, you, you still, you don't make excuses for yourself. Yeah, I don't know why. It was like in my whatever little, you know, whatever was, was dealt to me or whatever I dealt to myself, I just decided to kind of, that was the card I dropped. Because I don't know why, maybe I'd heard uh, intelligent people complaining about people who, who, who lived forever in uh, blaming others for what clearly they were responsible for doing or not doing. Um, I don't know why, I, I don't know why I didn't have that. It would have been very convenient, you know. But again, I think, you know, I don't know, I, I marvel at it in these, I don't know why I've been in this kind of reverie just in the last couple months and this is why this is an interesting time to be catching up and talking to someone who, um, you know, we're not trying to sell soap, we're just kind of talking, you know, and it's, it's a little more introspective is that I just kind of look back like I was, I was, we just drove by on the way down here, the place that I went to junior high school and I used to jog around the track with a with a, a boom box playing Michael Jackson's Off the Wall. And I look back at that and I go, I was like chachi. It was like, what, who was that person? And you know, I was a product of what was going on societally and uh, in, in this huge influx of new kind of you know, music and commercialism and all that stuff. And I just, I don't know, it's just amazing, you know? I, I couldn't, place myself back there from where I am now and I, I couldn't really imagine this being the, the end result of where I was then, you know? Right. It's kind of, it's very mysterious. When was the last time you had to audition? Uh, the last time recently was for uh, Iron Man. So 2006, I think. Now, that's amazing to me because, you know, you've at that point you're 30 films in, that's pretty good right. audition. But is there a value to that, do you think? There's a value to everything. And the more you resist something, the, the more you make out of it. I mean, everybody has their five things that they're quietly uh, resisting doing. And a good day for them is when none of those resistances come and directly confront them, you know? And again, I think um, maybe even more so than not making excuses is I realized that, that, you know, why, why should I be spared what anybody else would? And also, in their defense, I hadn't exactly played Mr. Johnny Handgun or some guy who was like a kind of, you know, semi-sexy, charming, billionaire type guy who then you're going to put in this big machine and believe that he's going to, you know, kick ass and save the world. So. Um, but, but I like it. I like proving grounds. I also like those kind of crucibles that, that people have to go through. I, I wouldn't wish the anxiety of them on an enemy, but I also know that, um, that if I'd been spared a single one of them, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't you know, be where I am. Was there anxiety going into it? Yeah, but I mean, anxiety is relative. You know, to me, anxiety is, is being conscious of how much you're avoiding preparation. Oh, really? I think so. Certain anxiety is just, is just uh, somebody calls it doom light. It's just you wake up in the morning, nothing's happened, and you just have a sneaking suspicion because your head's already going that something's, something's afoot. Those, I feel, it's like that's just part of like, that's like sweeping your storefront in the morning. That's just general, like, you know, maintenance. 
But then the anxiety about an upcoming uh, opportunity or a challenge or a, you know, you know when there's a definitive like, this is my life's going to go one way or another depending on the result of this day. You know, even if you're just self-soothing by preparing and preparing and preparing. I mean, I tend to think about these things in a semi-military way, you know? It's like, check your equipment, get ready. Lives are saved by, by tough drill instructors, and in the absence of one, you have to be your own. That's interesting, because I think that people who don't know this business very well could think that, uh, you know, you can skate by on what you've already done or whatever, but you've, you've never really done that, have you? You've, you've always gone mad for the preparation and... Well, it depends. I've kind of gone to both extremes. I've gone to where I know everything inside and out and I know everybody else's lines better than they do. And then, you know, I've also spent years just using an earwig so that someone else is saying the dialogue and I, I don't have to stay up the, the night before. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, I think both extremes work, and it really just depends, you know. Um, the best thing to do to prepare for something in a way is just to really take care of yourself, you know, psychologically, and then just kind of show up. Because anybody can fumble the ball if they're, if they're in their head, no matter how good they were at practice, you know. It's like... Um, I'm sure part of your litmus is between the time the, the subject shows up and between the time they go home, that's action and cut and all the double talk and all the prep, it, anything that happens before or after that is either you've already captured the image and it's what can I do with what I've gathered or it's just really a, a lot of talk. Though I, I must say, and again, and it's basically just, you know, making very specific movies, you know, I feel doing a shoot with you where I like it sometimes when it seems like we don't really have an idea in our head, and I like it sometimes when you're very specific and you've picked out all the sets. Now, some of that's just due diligence, and some of that is respecting the, you know, the boundaries of time and space and other people's. I was talking about this on the way in, too. It's like, you know, as long as a director isn't so micromanaging that you're just like, oh my God, why did you even ask me to, to come do this? Anybody could come in and do what you said. I like it when someone knows, has a vision for what they're doing, you know? That, that brings up something I was going to ask you, because I read that James Toback said the best way to direct you is to just get out of your way, which I, I'm sure a lot of directors would say about a lot of actors. You know, you, you cast the person you want and you let them do their work, but, um, but I wonder if there are certain ways that you do like to be directed or certain, certain things that work for you that you look for in a director. Well, it's so weird, too, you know. I, I think it just feels very like, like high school, like, you know, I'm either comfortable if I feel like I can just run roughshod over somebody or I'm comfortable if I feel that um, they're really in my face, but I really know that they know what they're talking about. But really, the middle space is where all the, all the great stuff happens, you know. You don't really know what's going to happen when you show up somewhere. And, and I'm not the type of person that, that uh, with rare exceptions, that to me, the more and more I, I work on something, the better and better it gets. I tend to like to let things really percolate in a, what would externally seem like an extremely lazy, evasive fashion. And then I like to come in and try to just ninja it with not too many swipes. 
but you're not always afforded that. It's like you can't do that with a courtroom drama. But I don't know, I mean, I still feel very young and I look to other people. I think everybody holds the answers to my questions. Uh, looking at the experience and, and the, um, the body of work of others probably holds a lot of the, the answers to my unanswered questions, you know? I look at that guy with the mud on his face over there, uh, you know, like Matt Damon, I could probably learn a hundred things that I, that, that would make my job a lot easier just from all the stuff that he's done that I haven't and probably vice versa, you know? That's why I think forms like this, when they're not uh, for selling soap, are, are vital and I'd like to see them happen more often when there really is uh, an interview where we're really looking at each other and exchanging information. Well, that's gotta be kind of like a director and actor relationship too, because I would feel like you would have more anxiety on a project if you could run roughshod over a director. Like, I, I would think for an actor, that would, I'd rather be, you know, feel like I was in confidence hands, confident hands rather than I got this guy's number and he's intimidated by me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, you don't want to, uh, you don't want to have to lose your respect for somebody's um, position in order to feel okay. That's just such weirdo ego stuff, you know? Yeah. But it takes all kinds, you know? People are really weird, and I think you take a lot of eccentric people and then you put them in this situation where they're supposed to communicate and, and kind of drive towards a singular goal. It's amazing to me that any project ever gets finished. Yeah, right. You know, so I look to that as that is my, um, my proof positive of some sort of higher order. You know, life is doing something and we're here in it, you know. And it's really fun and glamorous to have these kind of cool call sheets with hipster titles, you know, and or like, you know, really a, a great rare piece of writing that you may or may not be able to execute or a very kind of bland two-dimensional genre, uh, you know, spec script that you intend on making a masterpiece out of. It's just, it's just, I don't know. Right, Hal Ashby versus David Mamet or something, right? Yeah. Are there personality traits that are common and essential in being a great director? I don't know. It is odd as heck to me. I have, however, been reading this book called The Tao of Leadership, and I recognize that um, great leadership requires a great ability to not do anything in some ways. In other words, to not try to make things happen, but to um, be conscious of what's occurring in the moment and be very uh, flexible and in, in, in where you go, but very rooted in, in the basis of, you know, the principle of what you're trying to do. So uh, I think what I really just look for, I just look for a connection, you know, I just look for, does it seem like the two of us are gonna make this third thing that feels like I'm, I'm just as much out there doing it for you or doing you as, as you're helping me, blah, blah, blah. But it's easy to say when you're the front man for a band. Sure, know? sure. I've been around a lot of directors and one thing that I'm always fascinated with is that they can project this aura of relaxation and confidence and yet right. 
they're getting exactly what they want. Yeah. It's almost like they are, uh, you know, they're able to do it in spite of what you would think it would take to get something done. Yeah, Guy Ritchie is a very good example of the uh, Tao of Leadership because he has a very relaxed set, um, very kind of witty and fun and, um, and loose set. And sometimes you'd look over and he'd be like playing chess while they're setting something up. And some part of me, the kind of anal uptight part of me, would be like, this is crazy, we should be talking about the next scene. But that's because I've been in close proximity for a producer, with a producer for so long, the missus, that I tend to think more and more about the overall scope and schedule and timing. And Susan is so efficient that she's thinking about what she could be doing, you know, while she's doing what she could be doing. Right. While she's doing what she could be doing. So, but um, Guy's a really good example of that because he winds up getting the kind of result he wants without having to, and once in a while he'll step in and, and get all, you know, cheeky and act something out or like tell you exactly what he's thinking just to show that, you know, he, he can do that once in a while if he wants. But for the most part, he just kind of really lets things uh, happen. I would think you look over and you see someone playing chess and the last thing you're going to think is, we're behind schedule or he's not getting what, he's, what he wants or, yeah. you know. Um, so when you first get a script, when someone drops something on your lap and says, we're interested in you for this, what is, what is your process to, to go through that and decide if it's something that's right for you? Um, I can pretty much tell before they deliver it. When they send a cover letter saying, so-and-so is doing this, look at the role of blah, 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 this is a such and such that wants to shoot in Hanana starting in Boof. I just go, oh, I, I have to read this. Or I go, more often than not, I go, I, I can't, this, thank you for sending it over, I can't read it. Right, so, and, and I'm sure the percentage is crazy, like 99% of... Yeah, but everybody has a, has a different process and some people love like just reading script samples and seeing if the character is there and blah, blah, blah. And again, I tend to think more, more now than ever, I think, well, what nobody's thinking of is I just did that, uh, except I did it this way. So I tend to think about as a, I tend to think of it as a consumer, if a consumer was choosing what I did next. But what if a consumer just wants to keep having the Iron Man experience over and over again? Um, they don't. Interesting. Yeah. So you think people, even though they may... Well, then I'm not listening to that consumer all the time. There's a million different ways. I, I just try to, I, I don't, and I don't mean to be so kind of uh, rigid and, and like um, professorial about the whole thing, but I also just tend to think about, you know, well, what kind of story is this? And I know what my strong suit is, and I also know where there's uh, areas in which I want to make inroads. So it's unlikely that I'll make inroads in a situation where I don't really know the people or I'm not super excited about the theme of the movie because they tell me this is what you want to do, you know? Right. So it's kind of a combination between, I, I tend to think about things very objectively as just marketplace. I don't like making movies that nobody's going to see or care about. And I don't want to try to do uh, just important movies because every movie is important. So, you know, for instance, this, the, the thing I'm doing next is a courtroom drama 
of sorts, but it's a lot more than that. And the only reason that I would be doing this movie is because uh, uh, my wife is producing it. She's passionate about it. It's a fantastic script, and it is a bit of a departure of sorts for both of us. So, but if someone else who had a, already had a director and they were producing it came to me and said, you've got to look at this courtroom drama, or now that we're doing this courtroom drama, even though it really isn't, we're getting all these courtroom drama things like, oh, is that what you want to do for the next 12 years? And I'm like, well, strangely, no. <laughs> so, right. you know. Well, yeah, so, so you obviously, which I assumed about you anyway, you want to do things you haven't done before. That's, that makes perfect sense. Um, so if, when you get to that point, you do say yes. What's your work with the script at that point? I mean. Well, it's also changed, you know. Um, since working with John Favreau on the first Iron Man, I have practically zero regard for what is physically printed on the pages when I go to work. And sometimes the better it is, the more annoying it is because the more likely I am to not innovate within it. Uh -huh. So it's a, it's a problem. It's gotten to the point where Todd Phillips, by the time we were done shooting um, Due Date said, I figured it out, you hate paper. <laughs> <laughs> now I think some of that is my own hubris and my own ego and that I come from a family of writers and, and um, and I like writing, and I think I at least know how to write for me, and oftentimes if I take a stab at a scene, you know, all the characters can come off a little better or whatever. But, um, so my, what is my process, you know? Over the last five or seven years, it's been a very kind of like drunken monkey, kind of like, I, I keep the attention on the, on the issue at hand. The issue is bringing the best me to set I can bring every day. What we're doing, you can just pick anything from the Chinese menu and it does, it, anything's really fine as long as I'm in good shape and it feels good and the blocking doesn't feel like we're doing a teleplay and all that stuff. That's funny because I think as you get older, that really is true. Get enough sleep, have the energy, and yeah. you've gotten to the end of the day successfully so many times right. that you just come to trust that. Yeah. Yeah, and also, I mean, honestly, you're only ever just living a day, you know? Sometimes when you, when you, the worst part of any day sometimes, I think, can be when you show up there, things get dialed in, they go, all right, we'll be ready in a minute. And you go, oh crap, is it, it's only 9 a.m. So what is this part of me that wants something to be over? Even something I enjoy, even something that I'm responsible to put my best foot forward in. It just feels like, it just feels like, it feels like school, you know? Life is, still feels like school. Like, I love a rain day. I love it when we're shooting and all of a sudden there's like thunder and lightning and they gotta shut down the generators. And it's not because I'm in an avoidance pattern. I don't wanna actually have to earn a living. I don't wanna have to do what I'm supposed to do. I just, um, I know that most everybody still operates on on the assumption that, hey, you know, at some point today, they, you know, they have to let us go home. So no matter how frustrating or challenging or fun, but then a little exhausting and kind of spinny any situation is, you know, at some point, 
it's just that's we have unions you know you're not going to work the world's first 240 hour day right. so i think <laughs> within those limits it's just about you know pacing yourself and um and i think also as i've gotten older and i realize a lot of the people i'm working with are of a younger generation i i like to spend a fair amount of my energy just trying to behaviorally model something that has some sort of dignity for the way one can react when things don't go uh, either particularly well or particularly kindly or smoothly or whatever, or it's just really hard and it's almost impossible to get it right even one time, but so what? We only have to do it right once. Sure. Well, that, that's interesting. It's true. You, you are working towards something you only have to do right once. Yeah. And, and then you can move on. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that you talk about, you know, getting older. And, uh, and I do think there's that thing where at some point you get older and you look around and you're the one with the most experience on set. You're the guy that's been in the most movies. You're the guy that's, uh, you know, and, and it, there's a shift that occurs. Do you, do you find that? Uh, I find that nobody else cares because, like me, they're primarily thinking about themselves. So if somebody has not made space for themselves yet, they can't really make space for anybody else. Um, I appreciate certain platitudes or any of that stuff too, but there's also nothing I like more than when some like nine-year-old kid looks at me and goes like, you don't really know, even know what you're doing, do you? And I go, no, never have. Now, why don't we try starting the scene over here and instead of looking away from the camera, look right here next to the map box and then I'm gonna stand off camera and I'm gonna give you three funny things to say. You're gonna say all of them three times in a row. All right, let's try that. So I think it's just absorbing. I just love projections, you know? I've never met someone that I was in awe of that once I was in close proximity for them, to them for a couple of hours, it wasn't smashed. So I like inviting people to realize, yes, I am just another schmuck standing here. I'm just really good at being another schmuck standing here because I've done it a lot. Well, and, and I think that some of it and some of, you know, the very fact that you're a, quote, generalist or uh, it seems to me like you have a wide range of places to go. Yeah. And by the way, sometimes that's limiting, too. You know, they say if you give somebody, uh, you know, uh, 30 choices of fabric, no matter what they pick, they're going to be dissatisfied with the choice. If you give them three choices they're going to feel like they've made the right decision based within that smaller avenue of options. And what's always on my mind is, is what we're doing effective? Is it efficient? Am I doing one kind of blocking or one kind of continuity in one take or in the master? And then am I doing something entirely different because I still haven't got what I wanted when we're doing it? It's like, well, no matter how you feel about what you got or what you, you, know, what you need or what you're trying to do, objectively we can't use this dummy you're gonna make the editor go bonkers like be a little consideration goes a long way right so you think about that you think I, whatever I'm figuring out in the master I've got to kind of stick with I well I also think that people who don't believe that their process is more important than the overall process and that is a that is how you make enemies with the uh, with cosmic justice, because you will be uh, you will be humiliated.
Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, BetterHelp. If you think you may be depressed or if you're feeling overwhelmed or anxious, uh, you're probably not alone. I sure know that I've been in all those places throughout my career and even in the last eight or nine months, it's not an easy time to feel great about things. And BetterHelp Online Counseling Services offers licensed professional therapists who are trained to listen and help with issues, including anxiety, depression, relationship conflicts, sleeping difficulty, family conflicts, self-esteem, and more. And if you're like me, if you're an entrepreneur or an artist or somebody who has had to rely on themselves for most everything. In other words, if you've built your own life and you're going through this world trying to figure things out like I have been, there are times when you just need help. You need to sort things out. And I've been a big proponent since my 20s of therapy. When I first went to therapy, you know, it was like a needle in a haystack to try to find somebody that could help me. And if you can imagine me back then going through the phone book and searching for therapists and asking people for recommendations, it was a whole new world and it was a world that I didn't know anything about. And so, you know, it took me a while to find someone that I really felt good about. And and I feel great about this company, BetterHelp, because they've sort of managed to figure all of that out and make it much easier for you to find the right person that can give you the help you need. What they do is you simply fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with your counselor in under 48 hours. You can schedule secure phone or video sessions. Plus, you can exchange unlimited message, communicate with your therapist, and best of all, and of course, everything you share is confidential. If you're unhappy with your counselor, if you don't feel like it's a good match, you can just request a new one at any time for no additional charge. I think about if I had had this kind of access when I had started, it would have saved me a lot of time. Funny story, I used to ride my bike to therapy because I was trying to combine two of my self-care activities in one, therapy and physical exercise. And uh, I remember often being late and racing to therapy on my bike and coming in out of breath. And well, it's a lot different now and it's a lot easier. And BetterHelp has really figured out how to do this from the privacy of your own home. It's just a great system. So join the 1 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced BetterHelp counselor. BetterHelp is an affordable option and the listeners of Off Camera get 10% off their first month with the discount code CAMERA. Go to betterhelp.com, that's betterhelp.com slash camera. And you can talk to a therapist online and get the help you need. Now back to the show. Editing, to me, is the best film school you can ever have. When you have to go in and actually put something together out of the things you made that day or that week <laughs> or that movie, um, there's no better way to learn what you don't have right. until, you, until you go to the edit room. Um, after, after doing this so long, do you, do you ever think, God, I, like, I, could, I could have so much of a larger palette of things to work with as a director, or do you just love being an actor? Well, uh, both. You know, it's a super tough job. And a lot of the directors that I most admire, you know, it's so funny. You only, you only know what you know. You can't see until you can see, you know? I grew up with everyone saying, everything you do before the first day you start shooting, that's what makes or breaks the experience then really it only matters what you do between action and cut. No matter what you thought you were going to do, if you aren't good in the scenes on the day, you're gonna be disappointed. 
and then a filmmaker or a real producer or or you know an actor anyone who's been around long enough realizes that both of those stages in the process are simply about preparing to collect data and collecting data neither of them are as important as what happens when all the hipsters you know fly home and you're left with uh, this rubble out of which you can make the Sistine Chapel or you know the uh, large-scale tail of the pup you know and um, so that's what that's the next thing I'm kind of looking over the looking over Hadrian's wall and going like, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's the part that I haven't bothered to really invest my attention in, you know? So it's exciting, I guess. Also sounds exhausting. Do you, do you, is it something that you think inevitably you will do, you will direct a film? I guess so. Um, yeah, I have one in mind. Uh, and of course I picked the one movie in our, in our lineup, which is just like, no, nobody knows like how you would do it, right? So. Um, but I like it, you know, the same way girls like it when you hand them a necklace that's so knotted up, you think you should just throw it away and then they get it undone, you know, like I like that sort of, uh, challenge and maybe, you know, maybe that's what I'll do. Maybe not. Maybe it'll just lead me to something else. But right now, you know, I'm, 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 I'm pretty happy just being in front of the camera and taking it easy and, you know, right. I'm not a kid anymore, but I have kids directing just I mean that's a that's a two-year commitment of you know yeah you know and you look at the directors that have had the long long runs like Coen Brothers 33 years of great films or Clint yeah. Eastwood or people who have really made a run and, and the energy and the uh, commitment of time that goes into it is insane whereas as, as an actor you have a lot of time within the machinery right yeah and yet time is relative you know i i'm a bit of a trailer dweller i like to go back to my you know it's like if i'm not working then i should be i should be you know laid out somewhere you know watching cable or whatever but i think i've just gotten so spoiled but i also know like you know the eastwood method is the way i would go it's like i don't there's no reason to get too excited here you know we don't need to try to be shooting, you know, 12, 14, 16 hour days. Like, it, it is so the law of, of diminishing returns, you know. I even read and somebody told me, you know, the, the body and life has these natural rhythms of an hour and 40 minutes of activity and 20 minutes of rest. And I said, that actually sounds like a work day that went right on a good set. But the same way that you know we know now that starting a kid in school before 10 a.m. is absolutely ineffective for anything except the teachers and the administrators but nobody's starting kids at 10 a.m. really starting to shoot before 8 a.m. and shooting past 6 it's just you're getting a little more in the can and you're maybe making your schedule your budget but you're not necessarily getting great work sure sure now going back to Chaplin I know just from reading, you did a ton of preparation for that film. And I wonder if that preparation was fear-based or was it reverence because he was such a genius that you've been given this, this man to portray? Uh, how did all the preparation and all the work you did for that film kind of inform the rest of your career? Well... I mean, it, it was my it was my my first Iron Man experience where I went in and screen tested for something that there wasn't exactly you know um, 
immediate faith that I could do it. So I like a challenge. What was that? What was that screen test like? It was like, um, well, first of all, I, I went in to meet Richard Attenborough, and he held up a picture of Tom Cruise and goes, "Now, isn't that a remarkable resemblance?" And I was like, "What am I supposed to say? Yeah, you should give him the part." You're kidding. No, um, I don't even think uh, Tom considered doing. It. I don't know what he did. He could have. But anyway. What essentially happened was they put the movie together and then the financing kept getting pulled or falling apart or put back together until I think Carol Code did it with TriStar. That um, Dickie kept calling me and saying, darling, just hold on three, five, seven more months. So I think I wound up having, you know, like nine months or something like that to get ready. So you screen test and then the movie doesn't, get, doesn't start for another... Yeah, but I was cast. That's you were all, cast. That's okay. all I needed to hear. And when, when you did the screen test, did you know, were you able to prepare for it, say these are the scenes we want to see, or I, was it? Yeah, yeah, I had a couple, I had a couple uh, afternoons with a dialect coach, and I had a day or two with a movement coach, and it was this very kind of haphazard, just kind of a grab bag of chaplainisms or whatever. But I think I was supposed to play with like a, uh, like a, a step ladder or something like that, and that went okay. I couldn't tell you what I did or what I was thinking I was gonna do. But I, I, I felt, um, I just felt akin to the guy. Um, I spent a fair amount of time going around to some of the places he'd been. But to answer your original question, yeah, the, the longer I had to get ready, the, the more I realized that this guy was an absolute mountain, and there was no way that I, that I could really ever do anything besides you know, be as honest as I could imagine about portraying an aspect of him, which was his public and private personas. I read that you, you took, you learned to play tennis left-handed. Yeah. And, and, uh... Well, I learned to play tennis with old tennis rackets, and then I was looking at some old films, and I realized he was ambidextrous, that he was playing left-handed. Then I went back to my tennis coach and said, just one last thing, we gotta switch. <laughs> and well, then the day that we shot it, I, it all kind of went out the window. And I'm there with Kevin Klein. It's just like, darling, will they really know? And I just couldn't, I couldn't let go. But I find that interesting that uh, some, it must have gone through your head, like, no one's going to know this but me. Right. But yet you felt like it was important to do that. Well, look, part of that is the story, being able to sit here, you know, 21 years later and, and tell you how committed I was. So oftentimes I think the most earnest things are done with motive in that moment. I was like 25, 26 years old, and you couldn't tell me otherwise. So, so you'd had an experience before Chaplin where you didn't prepare enough, and, that, and you said, I'm not going to let that happen again? Or? Um, no, I just, went, I just went mental with that, and I went mental with the screen test for um, Iron Man. I went absolutely uh, bat guano crazy when I was doing Scanner Darkly. Uh, uh, I wanted to know any and everything I was going to say backwards and forwards. I've done it, you know, when you're on TV, you have to do it because you're going to shoot more pages than any human should have to remember every day and they don't care. Right. So, um, you know, but extreme precision and extreme uh, imprecision both yield great rewards. It's that gray area in the middle that to me is the danger zone. In other words, have a plan. Either yes, yeah. be totally prepared, or know that you're going to go in and, and grab the magic. Yeah, I, I, I am prepared to basically just 
drop me in the hot zone and I will find a bush. <laughs> you know, songwriters, I talk to songwriters a lot and think about it and I write songs and I love music, so. I as well. I, you as well, and, and there's that question of, you know, some people talk about the song that just comes through the ether, like John Lennon would say, I just grab it and I, I had to get it down before it went away. Yeah. But then there's the other side of it, like, you know, Jackson Brown sitting, right. pouring cups of tea and, and working out the song like a math problem, like a scientist until he proves it, you sure. know? And, and I, maybe, maybe that's not too dissimilar from your acting process, right? There, there's some that come magically and, and you know intrinsically that you're just going to have it and others you feel like you really have to shape it and craft it. Yeah, you don't want to be dependent on God's grace. You need to know what to do when the sun is not shining. And I think of, of all the people I've ever been in proximity of, uh, Warren Beatty was probably my greatest teacher in that because he kind of anonymously produced this movie, The Pickup Artist, and he would say, what's Jack Jericho's action in this scene? And I was like, uh, he, he's trying to pick up girls. Um, he's telling a girl, he's he, the, c comparing girls to, uh, to paintings. And he goes, wrong, you're so wrong. Don't you even know what you're doing in this scene? I was like, I know, I know what I'm doing. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to drive a car. He goes, no, no, no. You're trying to get to work. But you keep getting distracted. So your action keeps changing. I was like, oh, yeah. He goes, so your action is to go to work. I said, yes, it is. He goes, right. But what happens? I go, well, I see a girl. He goes, and then what happens? I go, oh, my action changes. He goes, yeah. He goes, nobody's going to be inspired all the time but everybody should know what they're doing if they're being paid to play a part in a movie. It's irresponsible not to. I was like, thank you. So. That's a huge lesson, right? It's great. And by the way, though, it's embarrassingly obvious that this, that this kind of icon came by and knew what I was doing, and I was absolutely certain that I did, and I couldn't have been further from knowing what I was doing. Right, right. Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's funny how, how much of that, like, you can't, you can't expect any divine thing to happen to you if you don't prepare, right? Yeah. It's, almost like, it's almost like you have to prepare to, to throw it away. And, and uh, like I, I, only, I only make a great accidental picture if I have four ideas already that I could fall back on. Right. And the accidents are in between. Although sometimes you could argue that you prepared so much you didn't leave any room for accidents to happen. That to me is the, that to me is the great tragedy of any creative situation where somebody's got it so dialed in that if you want to do anything spontaneous, you have to give them 10 minutes notice. <laughs> That's you know? a great line. Right. You've always been considered an actor's actor. I don't know if it was around Chaplin or before, but you became saddled with this moniker of, you know, the greatest actor of his generation and all this stuff. And yet for the last five years, you have had you've been in this rarefied air where you've had two extremely successful tentpole franchise movies that you've carried. Um, and I am not usually attracted to those kind of movies. And yet, in both Iron Man and Sherlock Holmes, you bring a depth to that character that usually is just glossed over in those kind of films and not important and not written in. And I always wonder with you, if you even see any difference between, say, a small film like Two Girls and a Guy and Iron Man in terms of 
what you're bringing to the character. Like, do you see it as a big film versus a small film, or is it all just ro a role for you to play? Um, I like the idea of bringing marketable aspects to small movies, and I like the idea of bring, bringing an independent spirit into big movies. And I just like trying to invest anything with a, a sense of play, you know. Uh, it, truth be told, there's, there's far more skilled and capable actors in my generation than I am. I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm a very seasoned hustler and I'm able to kind of look at things and, and I, you know, I'm definitely dedicated and I definitely, I work as hard as the next guy. Um, but I also think, you know, you, you make your luck. Now, I, I wouldn't wish my trajectory on anyone, but it's, it's been pretty sweet. And it's also just like, you know, a thumbprint, you know, it'll never happen before. It's never happened before. It will never happen again. You know, it, it's, it's just, um, it's odd to me. But in case you wanted me to answer your question, I would say that I look at every, I try to look at everything the exact same way, just very impartially and extremely critically. I'm getting a little bit better because sometimes the delivery method of my, uh, of my critical nature can uh, dishearten things. And, um, and so I'm kind of returning just to a little bit more raw enthusiasm. And also, um, nobody wants to watch anybody go through their angst-ridden process. Nobody wants to watch anybody uh, projecting their you know, subconscious dilemmas onto well-meaning coworkers. Um, and I've, done, I've done, done pretty good at not being toxic in, in that realm. You know, I've witnessed a fair amount of it. And, we're all doing this very sensitive thing. But what I do know is I understand uh, a little more each day and each year and each project and each success, you know, how to reverse engineer those things and say, wow, that's why that worked. Uh -huh. Now, the way we got there has never been the same twice, and you can never replicate success from success. But you do get to extrapolate things, and they're always principle-based, you know? What is the tonal balance? What is the sense of fun? What is the sense of uh, emotional investment? What is the sense of surprise? What's the sense of, you know, don't worry, you're definitely going to get this thing that you're, you're sensing you deserve. You're gonna get a resolution. I'm gonna, you know, we're gonna make sure that it's satisfying, you know? Right. Uh, particularly in the Marvel universe, it's like, you know, we are always wondering what we would want in this moment at this, you know, development of, of the franchise, if we're sitting in the audience and we're in one of these four food groups of human beings. And, you know, we also, nowadays, we've created an expectation. They always want something that they didn't expect after the credits are done. Right, You know, right. an Easter egg, whatever you call that thing, sure. a, a postscript, you know, they love that. So certain of the things of, of, of replicating success become pretty identifiable is it goes here every time and it's kind of like this but it shouldn't be like it's ever been before but it's funny because you created this thing you created kind of a new a new uh, recipe for this kind of film and then you created a sort of a demand for 
for the audience to keep having that funny kind of feeling about that recipe. Like, yeah. well, I didn't expect this in, in a superhero movie or in a, a you know in a fantasy movie, and and I think that's what you've done. You've raised the bar for those kinds of things. Um, to where if, if someone else is going to go make a film about a comic book or action hero, they're going to reference Iron Man as the best example of how to humanize a character like that. And I think that, you know, maybe you, you don't see it being in it as much as maybe I see it being an audience member, how different you are in that kind of role than anyone else ever could be. Well, it's funny, even on the way here, there was this, you know, big street poster for Iron Man 3, and, uh, and I'm looking at it, and I was just, I was just saying, you know, it's, it's so odd to me that I still don't really directly identify with it. And maybe in a way that goes back to what, you know, uh, Mr. Jellison said when I was in theater arts at Sam High about, you know, on, um, you know, you have to maintain an aesthetic distance. Huh. You know? Or... Uh, maybe I'm still just not letting love in. But I also know that I, I already occasionally have too high an opinion of myself. And if I were to open the floodgates, I could become the very example of everything I've been telling you I don't like and don't want to be. Sure, but I notice there's a, there's a wink to a lot of your work, too, where you, you, do, you do play with that a little bit, where you, you do bring in that... that that little nod to the audience of, oh, I know, I know what I'm doing here, you know? Right. Well, I just remember whoever started that, they did a really good job with it. I just remember seeing it in movies, and I remember thinking whether it was, you know, I mean, just recent examples, you know, or of like, you know, Bill Murray in Groundhog Day, or Chevy Chase always, or people who have have, I think, been able to dramatize what's great about comedy, what's great about characters. I was watching Fletch the other night, and I go like, Love Fletch. how did he get away with this? What is he doing? He just says and does whatever he wants, no matter what's happening. He goes over there pushing him up to, to, being, uh, to being like booked at some police station, just picks up the phone and answers it and puts it back down or whatever, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, I guess just to close out the Iron Man thing and the whole big tentpole thing, um, do you, do you feel a pressure, a larger pressure, because there's so much money riding on it? Or do you let other people worry about that? Uh, both. Both. You know, it really just depends. I mean, uh, it's not my money, but I also, you know, my bloodline in the last 50 years has been so outside the establishment that there's something that feels really... Um, kind of dirty and great about being a company man. You know, I really enjoy it. Um, it's so, and it's also been a transcendent thing for me because it's so easy to project all of my character defects onto some brand and say, ah, you know, those, you know, those knuckleheads over at, you know, Fox or I mean, whatever you want right. to say, you know, it's so easy to say that. And really what's behind that wall, that illusory wall that I've created and projected is um, uh, other men and women, other human beings. And there's, you know, different ways of doing business, uh, you know, every 20 feet in any industry. But what I've enjoyed is it's, to me, it's just been an amazing education in the way things go. And, and um, it's been a great, to me, it's been like, you know, for a high school dropout, it's been like my, it's, I've gotten my doctorate in big studio movies and business and creativity and 
oftentimes it's the when there's the most riding on it they need the most kind of radical departures from just um, dotting I's and crossing T's you know they well, need they need that that secret sauce and I'm not saying I'm responsible for bringing in it bringing it in but I, I do know I do know when we're getting getting close you know right I I wonder also if you're you know you seriously had some low points and and spent mm. time in jail and mm, obviously mm. which uh, by the way, I, you know, I'm sure you've aired that laundry so many times. But I wonder if there was a uh, if there was a positive thing that came out of in terms of ambition and scope, and you know, if if spending time in jail gave you the idea that wow, I can, you know, I should take more advantage of what I have here. Like, did it did it broaden your horizon? It's like being grounded. All right. Whenever anyone's I, when kids are grounded they sure think about it a lot. And when they're not grounded, they don't think about it anymore. They're just glad they're not grounded. So, you know, the, the best part of any experience where your freedom is taken away from you by an institution is when it's over. Um, at the same time, you know, I, I learned a lot about, um, about time and, and uh, doing time instead of letting it do you and just, just the, the, the kind of the way things work. But there's so many different ways to be imprisoned. You know, a, a crappy relationship is worse than jail. And, um, and being out on the street and, and not being able to put your head down and realize, hey, you know what? I made a shit ton of mistakes and now I got to uh, have the humility to build myself and my life or my career or my relationships back up without blaming, without, um, without uh, self-pity, you know, without being bitter. Like, you know, in and of itself, it's just, it's a tool for detaining people who, who have, have lost their way with, you know, a process of right living. It's like being grounded. So, it, but it, you're grounded enough, maybe you learned to... <laughs> I don't know, you know, if, if you were to ask, you know, real psychological study results, is it effective? No. What's effective is, is motivating people toward uh, what's numinous to them, is motivating people toward feeling that, you know, there's, there's no, nothing hopeless about their life that they're not uh, accepting as such. Well, uh, Iron Man. This is the last film, I'm assuming, in the, in the, or maybe who certainly knows? the last film in this contract. <laughs> is there? Uh, By the way, I think you and I should should lock it down for a week somewhere and see what happens. Just bring a camera. Think so? Yeah, they call chat time three times a day. We're gonna get some great work done. I, you know what? I could probably do that for about six hours before I started pissing my pants. <laughs> I could never last in jail. You'd be fine. Your favorite day in jail would be the day they told you to roll it up. You've been, you've been released. Yeah, I can't imagine. Um, so so you, with, with kind of, I mean, your life kind of took this crazy arc with these giant films. And I, w I would imagine that the time commitment is extraordinary. And maybe you don't know until you're in it. Right. right. Um, so now that some of this is coming to a close, are you looking forward to, uh, a, you know, a different something, a different path? Or are you, are you kind of like, what's the next biggest thing I can do? Yeah, well, transitions are always tough, you know. 
you kind of simultaneously feel limited by something, but also comforted by it, you know? Um, and uh, really, truth be told, is it, you know, the Iron Man uh, uh, trilogy and Avengers and, and the Sherlock series, n none of that's been limiting. It's given me an immense amount of freedom. But like you said, time takes time and contracts run for a certain amount of whatever. So the nice thing now is in transitioning into having this production company with the misses, um, you know, we're going to start alighting to possibly greener pastures and trying other stuff. And, you know, the other thing that I'm sure and I would imagine you could relate to is, you know, when you're out there doing your your job, your craft, whatever, whatever, however, you know, gnarly you want to get about it. You know, you're essentially not living the real life that other people are afforded. You're traveling because you have a gig there. You're going to a show because you, I don't know, we had to do something on a Saturday, but I, I oh, because I missed the last three or whatever. So there's also a big part of me that just has such an incomplete education. And I would just like to bring a better me to bear just for, uh, I don't know, you know, whoever I'm at a dinner party with for whatever, however that increasing my own generalistic um, self, you know, Im improves whatever people get when they watch me work in. And, you know, I just feel like at, at 47 years old, there's, there's such a, it's not about catching up, it's about making space for the things that have kind of uh, been spoken for, right? you know? Essentially, on and off since I was 17, I've been given a call sheet as many mornings in a row as not. and. Um, and I like that artificial world, and it's not really artificial. It's my real life, and it's a real job. And you know, hundreds of people are sharing that real thing that some might consider artificial. But uh, I'm looking forward just to continuing just my you know my education as someone who's interested in life. You know, at some point you look at as is, is there too much work and not enough You know, getting that balance is I think important and. Um, you know, it sounds like you're in a position where, you know, you can kind of do whatever you want. So you might as well right. figure it's, out. It's, it's hard to really grasp that existential fact that the only commodity that is not negotiable is time. You know? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. I really appreciate you uh, Good. sitting down and, you know. When you edit this together into 45 seconds, I yes. really want to take a look at it. <laughs> we'll just be doing, it'll be like multiple overlapping uh, images. It'll, It'll just be, be the word process. Experience, process, experience. <laughs> oh, really, thank you. Uh, appreciate it. You have just finished listening to another episode of Off Camera. To access more episodes, subscribe, and be a part of the entire off-camera experience, please visit offcamera.com. This has been a presentation of the NTD Broadcast Network.